went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Father, we do come to you today and thank you that you've reminded us very clearly through your word that the reason that we are here is to give praise to you and we continue to do that now Lord as we dig into this passage and look at your word God help us to have the attitude that our answer to you today is yes whatever you call us to be, whatever you call us to do, whatever you call us to change in our life. Our ears are open, our heart is open to hear you call. As you call, God, I pray that, that the attitude of our heart will be to say yes to you, to know you more deeply, to follow you closer than we've ever followed you before. We thank you for this time that we can honor you and show our love to you in continued worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bible, if you haven't already done so, and open with me to Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're, going to be, we're going to be digging in from Mark chapter 2 today, and as we read earlier, going through chapter 3 and, and verse 6. And so we have an extensive uh, passage of Scripture 
that includes uh, five different episodes in the life of Jesus. Um, I hope you understand that that conflict in life is inevitable. There is no way to avoid conflict. The day you were born until the day you would die, every single step along the way, every day you will have almost constant conflict. And Mark takes the life of Jesus and in following through with the life of Jesus, he reveals to us the way Jesus taught us and modeled for us of how to handle conflict. So as we continue our journey, we can, we can learn how Jesus guides believers through every kind of conflict that might come into our life. Wherever Jesus went, he taught and he preached. He's already told us in the, in the first chapter of the book of Mark that that's why he came into the world. He came to, to teach. He came to to, to preach. Sometimes it was in the synagogue, sometimes it was at the base of a hillside with thousands of people scattered uh, along the, the hillside. Sometimes he, he stood on a boat just offshore and talked to people who were standing crowded along the, along the shore. But wherever he went, crowds followed. And wherever he went, conflict was inevitable. So we look today at these five events from the life of Jesus and look carefully at four different principles, four different things that he teaches us about dealing with conflict. So let's dig into it. You have your Bible open to Mark chapter 2. First of all, we see that conflict exists in every relationship. Conflict exists in every relationship. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he went, again, he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So in Mark chapter 2, if you look back up in verse 1, you see that Jesus had returned to his home in Capernaum. And crowds heard that he was there, and crowds of people rushed to see him. There was something special about Jesus because the word had gotten out that he was healing people. He was touching people. He was changing people's lives. There was a sensational aspect to the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, let me just right here interject a word of caution. Be careful how you follow crowds of people. Most of these people who ran after Jesus, most of these people who were part of the crowd were following him for the wrong reason. However, anytime the crowds gathered, Jesus took advantage of the crowd to teach and to preach. So in verse 14, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So historically, Capernaum was a customs post where uh, taxes were collected for the Roman government. Now, I don't know how you feel about taxes. Um, honestly, taxes are, are a good thing. If you, if you pay taxes, that means you make more money. I mean, the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. But there's just something that sours us about paying taxes, right? And that was even worse in the first century because tax collectors were expected to collect a commission, but they had a miserable reputation for overcharging and keeping the excess of what they charged to build their own wealth, to build their own profits. So the holder of this office was disdained in command. In fact, the holder of this office, if you were a tax collector, you could not even enter the synagogue. You were considered to be unclean. You were looked down upon tremendously because that office said that you valued money over your reputation. You put money over your family. 
And so the office was terribly disdained. Levi had chosen to be a partner with the Roman government, and he had chosen to work as a tax collector. I'm sure you're aware that every choice you make has the potential to breed conflict. Uh, every choice you make opens the door wide open uh, to conflict. So let me ask you, is it ever wise to walk away from your family and friends in order to make a ton of money? That's what Matthew did. That's what he chose to do. And up to this point in his life, his character was disgusting. Uh, if you compared his reputation today, you might compare his reputation to someone who deals drugs or uh, someone who deals in child pornography or someone who is a, a, a pimp, that kind of thing. In other words, it, it's not the kind of reputation that your parents are proud of. <laughs> it's not the kind of reputation that you write home about or you won't post it in the newspaper uh, about you. So what did Jesus do? Well, he created conflict. Jesus chose this disreputable human being, Levi, to be one of his disciples. Jesus made the hard choice, and it created conflict. And then Matthew had to make a choice. Matthew had to make the hard choice. In verse 14, Jesus said, follow me. And the Bible says, he rose and followed him. So there was a conflict going on in Matthew that, you know, was he going to choose to stay at the tax booth and continue to rake in tons of money and be a wealthy person? Or was he going to walk away from that past and turn his life over to following Jesus? Now, there's a couple of principles here that I just don't want to pass over. First of all, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your background is. If, if you hear Jesus calling you today, and He is calling people today, if you hear Jesus call you today, it's in your best interest. The wisest choice you can make is follow Him. Do like Levi. Immediately leave what you're doing. And go and follow Jesus. The second principle is, no matter what it costs, no matter what it costs, uh, never assume and assess that someone is too far from God for you to share the gospel with. In fact, the, the person you might think who is too disgusting, the person who you might think is too bad of a sinner or too controversial, could be the very person that God wants to transform through your witness. Through exposing what God has done in your life through Jesus. To transform your life so that that person's life might also have the opportunity to be transformed. You're going to hear later today that we're in this process of praying for a person, one person... You know, there are more than two billion people on planet Earth who've never heard the name of Jesus. That just seems incredible that that many people have never even heard of Jesus. And I'm not asking you to go after two billion. I am asking you to pray about one. One person that you can choose to pray about God opening up the door for you to share a witness. No matter what that person's background might be. So then Jesus continued to create conflict. He didn't stop there. He went to Matthew's house for a dinner party. Now imagine that. I mean, the, the worst thing that a person could do in the, in the mind of religious people was hang around with irreligious people. And these Pharisees saw Jesus, first of all, call a despicable person like Matthew. To follow him and then not only to go to his house but to make himself comfortable at his house look at verse 15 
as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Notice that, that Jesus literally made himself at home. <laughs> he sprawled out. He, he laid out at the table of this awful sinner, Matthew. And holy religious people noticed what Jesus was doing and turned their noses down in judgment, not only upon the sinners, but also upon Jesus who related to the sinners. Verse 16, the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the question these religious people were asking was not a bad question. In fact, it was a good question. But Jesus absolutely had a reason for breaking tradition and emphasizing the value of human souls over the 1613 rabbinical laws that religious people had extracted from the Ten Commandments that God gave us it was ridiculous. And the answer Jesus gave did nothing but create more conflict. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being sicker than the sinners. He proclaimed that God favored repentant sinners over self-righteous religious people. That was true in the first century, and that's true today. Not a person here has the right to judge anybody. We have the calling and command from Jesus to be a witness to everybody. And when we disobey Jesus by not being a witness to those who are far from God, we're worse off than those who are committing the sin. And so God favors repentant sinners over religious people. Now when Jesus said that, how do you think that made the religious people feel? <laughs> it made them feel mad, angry. See, the purpose of Jesus, though, was not to please man, but to please God. And that should be your purpose and my purpose as well. So the stage was set. The very purpose and ministry of Jesus created tremendous conflict. And His mission and ministry working through your life today will create conflict at all. If you're not feeling any conflict in your life today from being a witness for Jesus, you know what that tells the world? That tells the world that you're worse than the sinners. You're worse than the sinners. That's what Jesus is saying. And furthermore, when you start sharing the gospel with non-believers, you're going to feel conflict. You're going to feel conflict inside yourself. You're going to argue with yourself whether you should be sharing the gospel with these people or not. Or what is the first you know, step you need to take in sharing the gospel with people. Or you're going to feel the conflict from the person who is non-responsive or either ill-responsive to the message that you have to share. Conflict is inevitable. So conflict exists in every relationship. Secondly, conflict grows with misunderstanding. In verses 18 to 22, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, Jesus practiced fasting. But look at what was wrong with what they were doing. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, Jesus grew in popularity. And people from all kinds of backgrounds were asking all kinds of questions about him. John's disciples were great people. John's disciples had 
a repentant heart. They fasted. They prayed. They were looking for the kingdom of God to come. They were very good people. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were super pious and self-righteous and religious in their actions, but in their heart they were far from God. And so we have this misunderstanding going on here about the purpose and the thinking and the ministry and the actions of Jesus. And this misunderstanding created conflict. Asking questions is not bad. That's what the disciples of John and the Pharisees and other people were doing. They were asking questions. Asking questions is not bad. In fact, it's the only way you can learn something is to ask questions. You ought to be asking questions. That's the way we learn from Scripture is by asking the right kind of questions in the right kind of way. But when Jesus answered their questions, they did not like the way he answered the questions. He answered the question with three analogies. Jesus always answered questions in, in pictures so, so people could understand what he was saying. And I think you'll get the picture here as you look at his answer to the question about fasting. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. So culturally, in the first century, like in many Asian and Middle Eastern countries today, a wedding ceremony lasted a whole week. It wasn't just, you know, like a day and a half having a rehearsal and having the wedding ceremony and you're off and that's it. It lasted a whole week. And during the process of that week, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to prepare and present to all the guests, all the the, the, the friends of the family and the family members who were there, uh, luscious meals and drink. And during the time that the wedding feast was going on, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, it, it would be ridiculous to fast. In fact, it would be an insult to the family to fast when the family had gone to all the trouble to provide this food. And so the religious leaders and the disciples of John were beginning to get what Jesus was saying. He was saying, listen, friends, the bridegroom's here. We're not fasting today because the bridegroom is here and I am the bridegroom. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. And you can't fast while I'm here. But the time is coming when I'm going to be taken away. He was predicting his death on the cross. He was saying, the time's coming when I'll be taken away, and then it will be time to go back to fasting again. So this picture was crystal clear for the disciples, I mean for the Pharisees and for the disciples of John. But then his second and third analogies caused even more conflict with the rabbinical tradition. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does, the patch tears away from it and the new, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. In other words, if you put a fresh patch on an old tear, over time that fresh patch is not going to give way. The old patch is going to give way and it's going to tear a bigger hole than you had to start with. And that's ridiculous. And then he says... No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying there's a new way of thinking about who he is. There's a new way of thinking how he affects life on earth. Mark has already told us in chapter 1 that the, the kingdom of heaven has come with Jesus. And in our world today, when Jesus is properly presented to the world, it creates a whole new way of thinking about life and a whole new way of thinking about religion. Some of you are here today and 
You need to listen to what Jesus is saying to you through these three analogies. Because he has come. And he has brought a new way of knowing God and trusting God. And that new way of knowing God and trusting God is through him, through Jesus, through the Messiah, through the bridegroom. And if you've never trusted him, don't misunderstand what his life represents. It's not just a, a sweet, good story. It's a call for you to do like Matthew and leave your old way of life behind and get on board with knowing him and following him. But there's no way to doubt it. The new way of thinking and acting by Jesus caused tremendous misunderstanding among religious people. See, God's law is perfect. God's law is never going to change. But Jesus tore down systems of man-made rules and regulations and restored the God-given principle of relationship. Every law that God gave is about relationship. It's either about your relationship with Him and how that relationship with Him affects your life, or it's about your relationship with other people and how God's relationship with you should affect the way you love other people. That's what the law is all about. It's not keeping rules and regulations and details about what you can and what you cannot do. And so conflict grew out of this misunderstanding of what relationship with Jesus is all about. Let me ask you a question. How are you trying to follow rules and regulations to please God? See, God is saying, if you understand why I sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus is saying, if you understand why I came into the world, it's so you can have a relationship, a personal relationship with the Father. And so your life can be all about showing the world what it looks like for your life to be changed by the power of the gospel. How do you get to know God? Well, you get to know Him through reading His Word and studying His Word and asking God, God, teach me what you want me to know about you and teach me what you want to change about me so I can be more like you. That's how you get to know God. For some of you here today, that creates conflict in your life because God is not on the radar screen in your conscious life. I want to challenge you today to join me in getting in tune with God. Not misunderstanding why Jesus came and what Jesus came to do by drawing you and me to a relationship with God that's real and genuine. And not only changes our life, but has the potential of showing the world what God can do by changing our life and changing another life and knowing and following Jesus. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had memorized tons of scripture, but their motive was far from godly. And that's what Jesus was trying to point out to them. And when he pointed that out, conflict grew with this misunderstanding. Thirdly, we see that conflict grows with misinformation. Misinformation. In chapter 2 and verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So these religious leaders were misinformed. And there's much information in what the Bible says and there's even more misinformation about what the Bible means to 
much of our generation today. There are Ten Commandments that God gave, and nowhere in the Ten Commandments does the Bible say what most of the rabbinical tradition taught. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the rabbinic law said that a person on the Sabbath could take no more than 1,999 steps. <laughs> you took that 2,000th step, and you were breaking the law. That is not in God's commandments. They also said that it was against the law to gather food on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, you know, I'll show you from your own history. So go back and look at the life of David. And they knew this story inside and out. They knew this story very well. And so Jesus actually used their history to prove his point. And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus told them that to survive, David and the leaders who were with him ate food that was only supposed to be eaten by the priest. But David knew that he was starving to death, and this act preserved his life, and also he gave honor and glory to God for providing the food for him from Abiathar's house. So keeping the Sabbath is about honoring and glorifying God and not being restricted from activity necessary for staying alive. God ordained the Sabbath when he created the world. He created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. And here's the principle. The principle of the Sabbath is this, and it's just as true today as it was then. There needs to be one day out of seven where you take care of your body, you get the physical rest and the change of pace from the normal activity of life that you, you need to stay healthy. But it also says that on that one day out of seven, you take advantage of that opportunity to give glory and praise to God and honor Him. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It's not about rules and regulations about what you can and what you can't do. And so Jesus pointed out and demonstrated that the Sabbath is about honoring God and taking care of your body and taking care to glorify God. That's why we worship on Sundays, typically. The, the Jewish Sabbath was sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And when Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross and died and then was resurrected on that first day of the week on Sunday, we celebrate on Sunday, typically, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the purpose for Sabbath is the same today, is to take care of our bodies and to honor God. Now, when Jesus shared this principle with the religious leaders of his day, you can imagine how mad it made them. So what about you? What, what have you been taught that keeps you from making all of life about Jesus? What are you pursuing in life to a greater degree than you're pursuing relationship with God through Jesus? I want to challenge you today to join me in never, never stopping asking the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in your life that's taking priority over Jesus. When Jesus revealed this to the Pharisees, their anger just continued to grow to a next level. And we see that exemplified in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And Jesus knew his enemies were watching him to trap him. And he said to the withered man, Come here. Now notice... Jesus initiated this miracle. 
The man with the withered hand didn't come to Jesus and say, would you please heal me? That's not the, the situation. Jesus saw the man, and he took advantage of the situation to, to prove his point. See, nothing but good can come from Jesus. He is ultimate good. Unfortunately, the religious leaders of his day had, had become misinformed about the identity and about the mission of Jesus. And I hope that's not true about you today. Misinformation about the authority of Jesus actually destroyed these religious leaders. It created rage in them that led to their total destruction. There's, there's no middle ground with following Jesus. You understand that, don't you? You're either all in or you're all out. There's no middle ground. So I want to challenge you to get in with Jesus today. Get on board with Jesus today. Please don't make the same mistake that these religious leaders made. Conflict grows with misinformation. And when you are not truly aware of who Jesus is and why He came, i.e., He is the Son of God, or he, is the, he is the Son of Man, He's the perfect man, the perfect God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, He's one. And the purpose of Jesus is to invade your life through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to create within you a desire to make all of life about knowing God and honoring God and serving Jesus. So I want to challenge you again to join me in digging deep into God's Word, the Bible. And be careful about staking your life or reputation on what man says about God's Word. But draw from that source of strength that is His Word for yourself. The Holy Spirit will use God's Word to guide the conscience of all believers. So pay close attention to the promptings of God's Spirit as He guides you into that living relationship with the true and living God. But understand that conflict is going to be a part of even that relationship because the closer you grow to God, the more He's going to reveal to you the things in your life that need to be honed away, cut away, chopped away that are different from Him. And so conflict is going to continue to rise even in that proper understanding of the relationship that you have with God. So finally this morning... I want to remind us from looking at the model of Jesus that conflict explodes with envious spirits. Conflict explodes with envious spirits. We see in verse 4, Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. In other words, they were speechless when they heard what Jesus said. Good question, Jesus asked. They either had to agree that Jesus was right and admit that they were wrong and choose to begin to follow him, or they had to continue on their plan to destroy Jesus. And this was the conflict of all conflicts. They were trapped and they were, knew it. As I said before, God's Spirit is moving in the lives of people here today. And you have a choice to make. As, as God's Spirit draws you to make all of life about Jesus, it's going to create conflict with you. And those who, like Matthew, chose to follow Jesus made the right choice and sold everything in their life, sold out to everything in their life in order to turn and follow Jesus and know Him as one of His disciples. Most of the religious leaders, on the other hand, turned away from Jesus. That's a choice. That's what conflict does. It creates a choice that you have to make.
These religious leaders were trapped. They knew it. They were speechless. And look at verse 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. See, Jesus even saw through their actions to their heart. And I hope you're aware that Jesus knows your heart today. He knows whether you're here for the right reason, to honor and to glorify and to worship Him and to praise Him, or you're here out of some habit or tradition or ulterior motive. I, I, I pray that He's gotten your attention today and you, you sense that He's calling you to jump all in and follow Him no matter what it costs. Because whatever you have to leave behind in following Jesus is worth leaving behind whatever you have to leave behind. The religious leaders of the day didn't get it and they got angry at Jesus. Notice that Jesus saw the hearts of those religious leaders and he expressed his anger in a positive way. He took the anger that he felt and used it to heal the man with a withered hand. Anger is not bad. Anger is a God-given emotion. And used in the right way, God can use it to draw us so close to Him that we give glory to Him and how we express anger against things that make God anger, angry. There's so many things that, that I'm sure make Jesus angry today. And to draw close enough to God to know what those things are and follow the Spirit of God and standing up and being angry about what God is angry about is a good thing. Anger can be expressed appropriately. And that's what Jesus did. And it can be a great witness for you to express anger in things that make God angry. But in verse 4, we have the context set here. Jesus said to them, Is it lawful? on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. Now again, this is in the context of that rabbinic law that the religious leaders were following. This rabbinic law had gotten ridiculous. A couple of examples. They said that untying a knot on the Sabbath day was unlawful. How ridiculous is that? They said that if you tore your garment on the Sabbath day, in other words, if you tore a hole in your pants, you could only put one stitch in it. No more than one stitch. You could put one stitch in it, but no more than one. Ridiculous. So when, when Jesus exercised his authority over their legalistic laws, they were so envious that they wanted to kill him. Now don't miss the point here. They were accusing Jesus of breaking the law by doing good while at the very same time they were plotting to kill Jesus in their heart on that same Sabbath day. Jesus says, which is worse, to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? And again, they heard what he was saying. And so the Bible tells us that they colluded with the Roman government officials the Herodians, to put Jesus to death. And we're going to track this as we move through the rest of Mark up until the time of when their plan actually comes to fruition. But I don't want to leave today without pointing out that envy, unlike anger, is a very dangerous emotion. Be careful to make sure that you never allow your life to fall into the trap of envy. Envy fuels negative responses to conflict. Envy destroys you and damages everybody that you know. It's a horrible emotion. The religious leaders envied Jesus so much that they wanted to see him dead. 
And that was a costly decision that they made. But remember, no one could hinder the mission of Jesus. Not the religious leaders of the day, not political leaders, not sensationalists, not even disciples who thought they wanted to follow him and jumped on board with following him. And then when the going got tough, they bailed out. Now, how can this apply to our life today? Two things. Two things that I want us to go away with today and not forget because Jesus guides believers through every kind of conflict. First of all, do not run away from conflict. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus taught us to recognize it and run to it and welcome it. Why? Second point. Take advantage of conflict to demonstrate that your life has been changed by the gospel. When you handle conflict appropriately, it gives you the opportunity to let your light shine for Jesus. Because conflict is not bad. It's a part of life. And how you choose to handle it demonstrates your identity as well as your destiny. Let me close with this picture. Sometimes conflict troubles us like a fly buzzing around our head. It's uh, annoying and distracting, but it doesn't really warrant an immediate response. Other times, though, conflict is like a swarm of hornets coming after us. It stings, it hurts, it creates fear within our life. And we have to respond to it. I want to challenge you, when you respond to conflict, whether it's when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and decide what you're going to put on, the clothes you're going to wear, I mean, that creates conflict. It really does. I mean, there's no way to avoid conflict. Or whether it's something as drastic as somebody listening to you share your personal story about how Jesus Christ has called you to follow him and you have said yes in following him and your prayer is that they will come to know him and follow him in the same kind of way that that you know him and follow him that's going to create an opportunity out of that conflict and my prayer for you and me is that we will be like Matthew we will get up from wherever we are when Jesus calls us and leave whatever we need to leave behind in order to make all of life about Him. Father, I pray today that as Your Holy Spirit continues to, to deal with our heart, that we will, first of all, listen to what You're calling us to be. Help us to admit that we're sinners and believe that Jesus died for our sin and repent of our sin, turn away from our sin and commit our life to making all of life about Jesus. God, whatever we have to abandon, whatever we have to leave behind, helps to realize that it's worth that in order to live life in harmony with you. God, thank you for the model that Jesus set for us the line that's drawn between being religious and being a believer in Jesus Christ. Help us to know you and cling to you and follow you and abandon whatever we need to abandon in order to let you shine through our life today. In Jesus' name now, we continue to worship. Amen.